You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, Uh, and now we continue on in uh, the New Testament in our ongoing series in the book called The Acts of the Apostles. If you're just joining us uh, today, that's okay. Uh, These sermons, each of them stands alone. And this one today, especially, it seems to me, stands alone. But let me give you a little uh, context so you, you know where we are. Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas have just completed... Uh, their first missionary circuit. They started in Antioch in Syria, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, a, a church that really the Holy Spirit began there as, as, uh, as uh, Gentiles were converted to Christianity. Barnabas was the first pastor there. Uh, the Antioch church became a very important church. It was, real, it was Paul's home church. It was Barnabas' home church. It was really the base for all of the early uh, Christian missionary activity. Um, so they left uh, from there as missionaries in Antioch. They went over to Cyprus, uh, went up to uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, traveled into central uh, and sort of coastal Turkey, and then retraced their steps. Uh, They have now come back to Antioch in Syria. And uh, at some time later, as they're there, some some Christian teachers have come from Jerusalem to Antioch and have begun to teach uh, a doctrine that Paul and Barnabas uh, strongly disagree with. And, And that's what Acts chapter 15 uh, is about. Acts 15 is a long chapter, so we're not going to be able to, because of time, to read the whole thing. We're going to read selected verses, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 22 through 29. Um, they're printed for you in your worship folder. And I'm going to ask if you're able uh, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, excuse me, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth... 
the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And now skipping down to verse 22, uh, the conference has completed its work, it's, it's made its findings, and they're going to put those findings in a letter, uh, and, and that's what this is about, verse, starting at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a a difficult uh, chapter, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand it and help me to communicate it. Uh, I pray that uh, your spirit would speak to us in ways that are uh, are true uh, and helpful and uh, lead to our transformation into being people who are more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I may not address your felt needs, but I will address your need that needs to be felt. Okay? Now, you may read a passage like this. You may have just sat down and go, did I get up for this? <laughs> right? Well, you might, you might say, you know, what does this have to do with me? Why do I care about some ancient theological debate? You know, why, pastor, don't you focus on something that is uh, more uh, practical, more relevant to my life today? I understand that reaction. Uh, but don't be fooled here. Uh, This event, this first Jerusalem conference uh, that is recorded here by Luke, uh, 
uh, has life or death implications for every person in this room. Uh, there is, in fact, actually nothing more practical uh, than the issue that was decided by this Jerusalem conference. So what I'd like to do today uh, to kind of get our minds around this is to ask and answer three questions, okay? First question, what what is the issue that the Jerusalem conference addressed? What was this conference all about? Second, why does your life depend on the decision it made? And then third, how does the decision of the Jerusalem conference impact how you face living and dying today? Okay? So what was the conference about? Why does your life depend upon its findings? And, and, and how does this, how do the findings, how does what this conference decided was the will and, and, and truth of God, how does that impact how you face living and dying today. So question one, what's the issue uh, that this Jerusalem conference addressed? Well, verse one lays it out. But some men came down from Judea. That's always confusing to us because they were going north. But you always go down from Jerusalem. So, so, so Christians uh, from Jerusalem... Uh, went to Antioch and they were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved right you can't be a Christian unless you're circumcised uh, according to the custom of Moses now this is happening in Antioch the church in Antioch creates a big stir Uh, there's no small dissension Luke says and debate uh, between Paul and Barnabas and these other Christians from Jerusalem. Uh, and it is in fa- apparently so intense that it ultimately gets referred to Jerusalem. Uh, let's, let's refer this issue to the apostles and the elders at the mother church, right, to get, to get a decision here. And so they send Paul and Barnabas uh, up to, uh, from Antioch up to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and then in Jerusalem, uh, at the conference, you see the issue expressed again at verse 5. Uh, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, okay? So what do you have here? These are Pharisees who have become believers in Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, so, so, uh, so some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is these non-Jewish Gentile believers. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So circumcision is sort of the defining requirement for males, uh, but that's just the sort of the tip of the iceberg. They say based to, in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, you've got to obey the law of Moses. And, uh, uh, so you see the issue? It's... The heart of this controversy really involves the, you know, the, the gospel itself. Are you, are you, whether you are a Jew or a non-Jew, and we have both here at New Life, are you made right with God 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? Or are you made right with God by faith in Jesus and keeping God's law? Huge difference, right? Huge difference. Say it another way. Did Jesus' life, death, and resurrection save you? Or did did it just make your salvation possible if you also do the right things? Say it another way. Is the gospel good advice? Or is it good news? Well, they have the conference, right? And uh, you heard the speech of Peter. There were other speeches as well. Paul and Barnabas both got up and spoke about their experiences in, in seeing Gentiles converted by faith, Gentiles that they non-Jewish people that they did not require to, to be circumcised or obey the law of, of Moses. Uh, and even James stands up and speaks. James, the brother of uh, Jesus uh, and the leader of the Jerusalem church and uh, they all make speeches and and uh, they consider the testimony they consider the experiences uh, they pray they put it up against all this up against the word of God and come to a conclusion right they are seeking through this process of debate and prayer and study what does the Holy Spirit require and they come to a conclusion and say, we know now, we, we believe now, here's what the Holy Spirit is saying, and that is that law obedience, obedience to the law of Moses is not required in order to be made right with God, or to be justified before God, or to be saved. We, those all sort of mean the same thing. The only thing that's required is faith in Jesus Alone. So, so the, this conference finds that the, the gospel is in fact good news. It's an announcement of something that God did for you through Jesus Christ. The gospel is not advice or instruction on what you must do in order to be justified before God. It's an announcement of what Jesus has done. So, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection save you. Right? It doesn't make it, those, his life, death, and resurrection doesn't make it possible for you to be saved if you also sufficiently obey the law. I was reminded as I was thinking through this of the famous answer that Karl Barth once gave to a question he received, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, was once asked uh, if he knew the exact moment he was saved. Did, do you know the exact moment you, you became a Christian? When were you actually saved? Do you know the moment? And, and Karl Barth replied, I was saved at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem in the year 33 A.D. Good answer. Right. We're saved by what Jesus did, not by what we do. 
Now if that's true, and it is, then what is this language in the letter? You wondering about that? I was. I've always scratched my head about that. Uh, uh, it's not the first time we see this language. If, you, if we had read the entire chapter, you would have heard it in, James, uh, in James's speech. This, is, this was language uh, uh, suggested by James, and it ends up in the, in the letter. It ends up being the finding uh, of the conference. Uh, but I never quite understood it because it looks like what they what they you know gave with uh, or took away with one hand they gave with the other right no you don't need to be circumcised no you don't need to keep the law of moses ah but you do need to do these four things it it, it doesn't it sound like just it was like just a swap uh, well, it sounds that way. I mean, look at verses 28 and 29, right? For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. Now, so that, that's really what James is saying there is we're not laying on you any greater burden than simply faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's all you have to do. But there's also these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. What is that saying? Well, it, it is, as I said, I mean, if you, if you read the chapter, if you saw James's speech, it's clear that James is on board with, the, with what we've said here, that no, uh, it is faith alone in Jesus. Um, so, and you don't have to keep the law of Moses to, in order to be saved. So, in other, maybe another word, way to say that is because what these these believers who were insisting on belief in in the law of Moses were saying was, in effect, to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew. So, so the conference concludes: No, you don't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. But what? they are also saying is that you do have to stop being a pagan. That's what's going on here. Uh, you, you know, a follower of Jesus becomes a follower of Jesus by, by putting his faith in Jesus. But he has to also, he can't at the same time be a pagan worshiper. You see, all four of these things in verses 28 and 29 are elements of pagan worship. Uh, you know, uh, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Do you hear that? I hear it too. There we go. Thanks, Brian. Um, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Right? Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul addressed that later, and he says it's okay for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You can buy it in the market, take it home, cook it up, enjoy it, so long as everybody that you're feeding it to doesn't have a conscience problem, right? Because sacrificing to an idol is sacrificing to nothing. But he makes a distinction between that and eating a meat sacrificed idol in the temple, in the pagan temple itself. That's different. That's saying something, that's communicating a message you don't want to communicate. So abstain from participating in temple meals, essentially. Abstain from blood, grossly, drinking blood was a part of pagan worship. 
you know, absorbing the life force of the of of the animals. Uh, abstained from uh, consuming strangled animals. Right? The, the Jews were were required by the law to uh, to uh, slaughter all of their animals in a way that drained the blood. Uh, but pagans often would strangle sacrificial victims uh, in order to capture their life breath. And then eat the meat of that animal and, and, and thereby absorb its life breath. Okay? So not, don't, don't eat strangled animals. And then it says sexual immorality. Well, of course, there were all, all kinds of various cultic sexual activities going on, uh, in, in pagan worship. In, in, in some ways, the, 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 some of these pagan temples were kind of like the local brothel, right? Um, the, the difficulty here for, for non-Jewish Christians is that pagan worship was so intertwined with civic life and cultural life that you could, you know, over here become a Christian and believe in Jesus, and yet in, as you go about your, 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 your work and go about you know, being a citizen of this town, it, everything happened in these pagan temples. And, and, and so the conference was saying, listen, all you need to do to be saved is to, is to have faith in Jesus. But at the same time, that faith in Jesus means that you can't participate over here in these pagan rites of worship. That's, that's, that's what's going on there. As Paul said later uh, in another context, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Right? Nothing. Uh, none. So, so, to be right with God, what's required is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, which also rules out pagan worship. But nothing else is required. Right? No circumcision, no law-keeping, nothing. That, now let, that gets us to our second question. Why is that so important? Why does your life depend upon that conclusion? Am I overstating it? I don't think so. Listen, in a biblical worldview, right, there, there is a creator God, and we believe the biblical worldview to be true, uh, and uh, there's a creator and there is everything else. We are creatures, and your life uh, as a creature uh, depends upon being in a right relationship with, the, with your creator, right? You need to be at peace with God. You need to be right with God. That requires faith in Jesus alone. And it's the alone part uh, that becomes difficult. It's the alone part, faith in Jesus alone, uh, that human beings naturally resist. We don't want to, it's hard for us to admit that I have to depend totally, totally on someone else. Right? We, we want to be in control, at least partial control, of our destinies. We want to be able to say we have earned, or at least partially earned anyway, what we get. And so the reality in, in our day, 
is that much of Christianity, especially in North America, in the West, uh, we've sort of bowed to that impulse in our human nature. And we have transformed much of Christianity uh, from what it is, and that is a divine rescue and rebirth of helpless, spiritually dead, judgment-worthy human beings. And we've transformed that into a synergistic partnership between basically good people and God. Where God assists you in your own moral and spiritual transformation. I mean, you know, a lot of people think about Christianity that way. You may be here, that's kind of what you think Christianity is. Ask some of your friends who aren't Christians. They'll ask them what they think it is. It will probably come to something like that. And, And a lot of it is getting packaged as Christianity. We're basically good. We, we, we in, through faith, enter into a partnership with, with uh, God uh, where He assists us in our own moral and spiritual transformation. And that's how we get saved. Um, sounds good. What's the problem with it? The problem, friends, is that human beings don't bring anything good to the table. Now Jesus taught the same thing and he uh, you know he, and he decimated his audience. I, I realize this isn't isn't a church growth strategy here. Um, it was Jesus teaching this kind of doctrine uh, that led uh, him to ask his disciples as Jesus watched all these all the crowd just sort of melt away and 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 him to say, "Do you guys want to leave too?" So where would we go? <laughs> you, 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 have, you have the words of life. But um, we don't bring anything good to the table. We think we do. I mean, we read the Bible. It's very easy for me to read the Bible, to read the Ten Commandments, and, and to think, to process that practically as, okay, here's, here's my, here is my plan, here's my agenda, here are my instructions. Here's what I need to do to be right with God. But in doing that, we forget what the Bible says about God's law. Right? The purpose of God's law was never to tell you what you had to do in order to be reconciled to God. The purpose of God's law was always to show you the human impossibility of doing that. The law showed you this was designed to show you this massive gulf between God's holiness, which is reflected in His law, and who you are. And the impossibility of you overcoming that chasm by your own obedience. Now some of you I know are already pushing back against this. And if you think I'm off base here, again, I, ref- I, I just take you to Jesus. This is, this is something that Jesus taught again and again and again. And he preeminently taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matt, the, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is essentially God's commentary on God's law. Right? It's like getting the author to tell you, here's what it says. 
Okay? And, and what's, what does it say? How, how holy do you have to be to, to, to meet, to satisfy God's law? The, I, I remember hearing about it and reading about an English teacher who assigned her high school class the, the, the assignment of um, reading the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't labeled as the Sermon on the Mount. It's commentary on, on biblical literacy in the country. Most of the kids didn't figure it out. And, and it was amazing to get, here, get their responses, you know, write a, write a sort of a response paper to the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Stupid. Lame. It's impossible. Nobody can do this. You know, um, but, right, what, what does Jesus say? If you've looked at a woman lustfully, you have committed uh, adultery. Already, if you hate someone, if you call them a name, uh, you have already murdered them. It says, "Don't just." He says, "Don't just love your friends, but love your enemies. Don't just pray for your family; pray for those who hurt you, persecute you. Don't worry about anything." I violate that hourly. Seek God first. Treat others as you want to be treated. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Look, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly realize that Jesus didn't preach that sermon to give you comfort. Jesus preached that sermon to strip away from you any pretension that you have it all together or that you can somehow get it all together. He preached it to show you that you need a Savior. You don't need help. You need rebirth. You need rescue. So do I. But we too often, man, we just it's we hold on to this. And and even sometimes without hardly realizing it, we we add to the faith in Jesus alone. Um, we add conditions. Think about it. Do you, do you add conditions? That probably isn't circumcision. You probably aren't thinking about the, the ceremonial law of Moses. But it might be that you, th- you think that you've got to believe in Jesus and have the right political views in order to be a real Christian. It might be that you've got to believe in Jesus, uh, you think you've got to believe in Jesus and educate your children in a certain way in order to be Christian. Or you've got to believe in Jesus and be a certain kind of nice person to be saved. Or you've got to believe in Jesus and have a certain theology. Or you've got to believe in Jesus and have some special second level experience of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. Listen friends, whatever it is you're adding to simple faith in the finished work of Jesus, zeroes out your faith in Jesus. Jesus plus something else equals zip. Saving faith is faith in Jesus alone. If it's faith in Jesus and something else, it isn't saving faith. You've overestimated your own ability. You've underestimated the holiness of God. 
and the human possibility of attaining to that holiness. That's why this is so critical. That's why this issue is so critical. Your eternal life is at risk. Do you remember Space Shuttle Columbia? That was in 2003. Couldn't believe, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, Space Shuttle Columbia's final mission, right? The shuttle uh, is completely covered, right? With heat deflecting tiles. And uh, those heat-deflecting tiles covering the shuttle are necessary because as the shuttle approaches Earth's atmosphere, right, the beautiful, life-giving air of home, that which is good, that beautiful air of home, uh, begins to become a problem. It becomes uh, an enemy. It becomes life-threatening. Why? Because the shuttle is moving so quickly that those air molecules begin to move past those uh, heat tiles so quickly that they obviously are heat things up and it becomes so hot that the air, it, the air is, becomes kind of a superheated plasma um, as, as, the, as the ship is entering the atmosphere. Now you may remember that on takeoff of Columbia, a chunk of insulating foam uh, separated from that main brown fuel tank uh, and, uh, and hit the left leading edge of Columbia's, uh, the, the leading edge of Columbia's left wing. And it knocked what we later found to be a six by ten inch hole in the tiles uh, on, the, on the left wing. And now it's 16 days later, and Columbia is re-entering uh, the atmosphere, and that superheated plasma uh, is uh, is finding its way into that breach, into that six by ten inch hole. Uh, Mission Control saw that it was happening; they could see sensors being cut off as this plasma was cutting through uh, the wing, and ultimately the wing uh, was cut off, which led to the catastrophic. A breakup of Columbia and the death of the crew at about 200,000 feet in elevation over the state of Texas. Why am I telling you all this? Because it's a metaphor for what I've just been talking about. You know, if you think of the tiles, the heat tiles as the gospel, right? What's the gospel? It's Jesus Christ and His finished work on your behalf. If, if those, that's, right, and it's, it's that, the gospel, that protects you as you come near, not to earth, but you come near to God, to God's beauty, to God's justice, to God's holiness, to God's wrath. Those are all good things, righteous things, perfect things, holy things, but, but we, we can't survive in the presence of those things. We can't get too close to those things unless we've got the shield, we're shielded by the gospel. Right? And because we're shielded, Christians, we, we are not destroyed by God's righteousness, by God's judgment, by His holiness, but we can, we can land, right, and be at home with Him.
But if the shield of the gospel is compromised, right? If it's if if it has been mixed with something other than Jesus, so that it isn't what it should be, then that something else that you've mixed in with Jesus, whatever it is, is just like that hole in Columbia's tiles, right? You're you're saving faith that gospel that saves you from the wrath of God is fatally compromised. It's important. It's critical. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Now, that leads us to the third and final question, which is how does this how does the decision how does that decision how does that finding impact you facing life and death today? You know, um, you know it's understand. You know, it's not God isn't just being arbitrary, right? It's it's um, the, the only thing that saves us is is because we it's impossible for us to do anything that merits salvation is Jesus right and it's what Jesus did so as we're just trusting in him alone for our salvation what does that mean for the way I live today what does that mean for how I face dying today four things real quick cuz we I've got to wind this up first first thing that does this thing it makes your status with God right now absolutely certain. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, He meant it. There's nothing more for Him to do, nothing more for you to do. At that moment, what Jesus meant when he said it is finished is, listen, I've kept all of the positive requirements of the law. Every jot and tittle of the law I have obeyed. Like, and you can't, right? I haven't had those lustful thoughts. I haven't had hateful thoughts. I've kept every law perfectly. And I kept it for you. But he's also saying, I've also kept the negative requirements of the law. I bore the penalty provisions of the law, the death penalty provisions of the law, for you. And that pronouncement of Jesus wasn't just his own, it was ratified three days later. How? When the Father raised him from the dead, right? Signaling to you, signaling to the world that the guilt and the power of sin has been destroyed by the work of Jesus. So if you're trusting in Him and in His finished work, not trusting in your faith, that's a big one. Christians are good about having faith in faith. How many people come to my office wondering if they're a Christian because they're angsting over the strength or weakness of their faith? And I said, it's not about your faith. It's about who your faith is in. And you don't have to angst about his strength. Right. 
So long as you're trusting in Him, not in your faith, not in your performance, not in your legacy, not in your morality, not in your charity, not in your family, you can be certain, absolutely certain, right now today, that you cannot sin your way out of God's salvation in life, and you can't miss God's salvation in death. Can I get an amen? Come on, Bob, where were you? <laughs> um, Jesus' work is perfect and it's finished. Second thing, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus alone gives you freedom. Freedom. Right? Peter says, right, verses 10 and 11, his speech, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? I love the, lang- the, 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 the imagery, borrowing it from Jesus, right? Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentile disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Right? In other words, you're putting a yoke of law-keeping in order to be a Christian on these non-Jews when we Jews don't keep the law. Right? And, and so he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Right? So what Peter's saying, listen, if, if you think salvation... If you've come in here today and think that your, your status with God depends upon your moral or spiritual performance, you came in here with a yoke on your shoulders that is impossibly heavy. It's going to burden you the rest of your life, and you, it's impossible for you to perform. But if you believe in Jesus and His work for you, that yoke is lifted off of you, and another yoke is put on. And it's Jesus' yoke, right? This is what Jesus says. But what does he say about his yoke? My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Right. Why? Because he's done the work. So you're no longer a slave to the law in your performance. You're a slave to Jesus. But what does that mean? It means you're an adopted son or daughter of the king. You're a co-heir with him. Friends, that's freedom. Third, doctrine justification by faith alone grows humility. And boy, is that something we need today? Right? You know, when you realize that everything you have is a gift from God, everything comes to you by through undeserved grace, when you wake up to the reality that Jesus did everything to bring you to God, then there is no ground for boasting. Nobody can peacock around here. Right? We're all sinners, saved by grace. And we can all enjoy. I'm, you know, there's some, there's, C.S. Lewis wrote about this, I couldn't find it. The, enjoying the relief of humility. Right When you can sort of step back and stop having to make yourself big and important in other people's eyes. Right? Because there's only one who's big and important. That's Jesus. He's the big and important one. And finally, fourth, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus alone gives you the power to live a holy life. Right? It's not like we just throw the law out here. You know, every religion in the world says some version of this. Do and be saved. Check it out. Every, every religion. Do and be saved. Um, but as we've been talking about, what does Jesus say uniquely? Be saved and do. 
That's a huge difference, right? Uh, see, all other religions motivate from the outside in. You've, you've got you've got to perform in order to be to, to, to be saved. So what what what's coming on you? Fear, guilt, reward, punishment. But Christianity motivates from the inside out because Jesus saved you already. He saved you fully by what He did. Now and now it says now that you're saved, I've taken you over the finish line. You're there. Now obey me. See now there's real. Growing inside every Christian is a gratitude, a love for the one who did all that for me. So we we, we do obey God's law. We, We do seek to live a life that pleases Him, which is a life that obeys the Ten Commandments, for example. But we don't do it now out of some slavish drive to get accepted, some slavish drive to get salvation, but we do it because we have received salvation. Our obedience to the law is our way of saying thank you. It's our way of saying I love you. Um, and, and, and the gospel moves our relationship to the law from I have to do this to I want to do it. Right? That's, that's gospel-powered living. I'm going to close with this. Quote, Dorothy Sayers. English crime writer, friend of C.S. Lewis. We've talked a lot about dogma today, right? Doctrine. People think that's boring. I hope you haven't found this boring. Uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was a Christian, did not think doctrine or dogma was boring. She thought it was dramatic. She says this, It is the dogma that is the drama. Not beautiful phrases, not comforting sentiments, not vague aspirations to loving kindness and moral uplift, not the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. Show that to the heathen, she says, and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that one be glad to believe. Friends, believe it and be glad. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Jerusalem conference and for what those elders and apostles decided there. Thank you for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that and the freedom we have because of what you decided through them. Thank you that we are freed from the law and our performance. Um, And thank you for the full and complete salvation we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.